Thank you very much. I'm really honored to be here. Why? Because it's a general tendency in the so-called free Western world that academic institutions are more and more transformed into factories to produce experts. And if being an intellectual means anything today, it means you are not an expert. Not in the sense that you are just speaking general platitudes and bluffing, but why? What does an expert do? An expert solves the problems which are formulated by others, those in power, basically. As a guy in France in a debate explained to me, this was a couple of years ago when, you remember, cars were burning in the suburbs of Paris, he said, here we need you academics, a good psychologist to explain to us how you control the crowd, a good urban planner to explain to us how to, how to dispose the street so that the crowd is easier to crash or whatever. Like the others, but formulate the problem, you are supposed to provide solutions. But I think the ABC, the basic feature of a true intellectual is that first, you question the problem itself, like, is this really a problem? How come that the problem is presented to us in such a way? Because I claim this is most often the case today. For example, media bombard us, especially now with this new war against ISIS. I have no sympathy for them. My problem is somewhere else, that it's presented as free permissive Western world against uh, fanatics? No, I think the first question to be raised here is, what is it in the dynamic of imminent, inherent dynamics of today's global order which generates fundamentalism? Fundamentalism is not a remainder of the past and so on. It's something generated by today's global dynamics. Look, I have no sympathy for Muslim fundamentalism. But, you know, these are official sources. I read about it here that FBI is observing, has under observation registered around 2 million people in the United States as potentially uh, potential Christian fundamentalist terrorists. Sorry to tell you, this is approximately the same number of terrorists as potential terrorist fundamentalist as in Arab countries. Or to give you another example, which is my favorite, Afghanistan. You know, today, the very notion of a fundamentalist country, crazy, Taliban, ex whatever. But listen, I'm unfortunately old enough to remember 40 years ago. Do you know that Afghanistan was arguably the most enlightened, tolerant, tolerant uh, uh, Middle East Muslim country. They had a king who was a kind of a pro-Western technocrat. They had even a very strong local communist party. And then things began to happen. You remember, communist party took power. When they started to lose power, uh, Soviet army intervenes then to crash, to beat the Soviets. United States mobilized their allies there financing them. You maybe know some of the names of those American allies there, Osama bin Laden and so on, literally. And 
what I'm saying here is that as the result of this process of being caught into world history, Afghanistan fundamentalized itself. So you see, it's not an old backward country. No, it's this, the, what does this mean? That it doesn't mean we should now admire, I'm not one of those crazy pseudo-leftists who claim, even if we don't agree with all the details, women's rights and so on, nonetheless, Islamic fundamentalists are a form of resistance towards global capitalism. No, no, but they are part of the same dynamic with global capitalism. So that's the beginning of it. And I didn't lose my thread, back to my starting point, <laughs> precisely because universities are being more and more turned into factories to produce experts. It's places like your place here, which are still part of intellectual life, but it's public sphere with a distance, outside official academic machinery, where, if I may put it in this Hegelian idealist way, the world spirit is still alive in places like this. Because, you know, I'm again old enough to remember when I was young, leftists usually like to say this, oh, you intellectual students, you live in your ivory tower while real people are suffering out there, blah, blah. But then I was quite shocked when some two, three years ago, I heard Bill Gates saying exactly the same thing. <laughs> you know, I claim that today this uh, this rhetoric of real people are suffering against ivory tower, I claim it's one of the most efficient rhetorical devices of those in power. Because what happens here? Ah, this is the ingeniosity of today's uh, capitalism. Uh, basically, uh, if you read these messages in detail, these statements, the message is, Millions are dying, Somalia, wherever, people are suffering, and so on. Why don't we forget all our stupid ideological struggles, capitalism, socialism, who cares? Why don't we all, people of goodwill, come together? Government, uh, uh, bankers, capitalists, TV movie stars, ordinary people, and just do something. I claim the message here is don't do something which means don't think too much, just do it. Which is why today I think the truly subversive thing is precisely to keep a distance, to say, no, I want to do some totally useless thinking. <laughs> I, I even once, and you know, I was in Northern Africa once, and this is one of my proudest moments. They applauded me. When I told them how they, their suffering, very real suffering, is manipulated by the West, and how, and how uh, uh, the true reply when some Western liberal is telling you, but people are suffering there, blah, blah, uh, I told them the true answer should be, fuck off, I don't care, I don't care if all the orphans die in Somalia, I want to finish this book on Hegel and... <laughs> and they started to applaud because they got the point that this is not against them. This is how their very real suffering is manipulated. Which is why I think that 
clarity and this emotional clarity blackmail is not just a rhetoric audition, but it's the key element of today's ideology. This is why, as I often did in my older books, I like, if there is one phenomenon that I think really embodies today's uh, everyday ideology, it's Starbucks. You know why? You enter it and you see all those disgusting posters, you know, like 5% of this goes to keep the rainforest, the other 5% to bring water to Sahara, whatever. Uh, you know why the, I find this so ingenious? Because in the old days, we were supposed to be split between consumerism and, let's call this, uh, general political care, philanthropy for others. But the basic operation of Starbucks is to include your general humanitarian anti-consumerist uh, concerns into consumerism itself. The point is, play for, pay for your cappuccino 40 cents more, and by drinking our cappuccino, you will also do your humanitarian duty, you will show solidarity, and so on and so on. This is why I'm even doubtful, and this statement, when I, whenever I repeat it, got me many enemies, I'm even doubtful about all this obsession with organic uh, food, apples, and so on. Look, do you really believe that those half-rotten apples, which cost double because they are organic, okay, maybe they are better. I'm just claiming that we are really, if you look deep into your heart, if you have one, I'm not sure I have one. Uh, <laughs> this is not why we are buying. We, it makes us feel good. Like, you know, you say, isn't it beautiful? Mother Earth in, in, is in crisis, and by buying those apples, I'm doing something for the Mother Earth. I'm part of a great movement of solidarity, and so on, and so on. This is where ideology is today. Of course, there is no ideology at that uh, stupid uh, general level of some big projects, and so on, and so on. We live ideology in everyday life. And... This is what I want to talk about today. Not about the topics of this book, event, or the other one, Absolute Recoil. Now I'm linking a little bit of propaganda, which will just appear by verso. Uh, uh, that book I like very much, Absolute Recoil, because it's, you know, I did write a mega book in the terms of quantity on Hegel, uh, less than nothing which certainly doesn't wait less than nothing, because it's 1,040 pages, no? And this book, Absolute Recoil, is a kind of a post-coital reflection on that one. I mean, you know, after I finish that one, it always happens. Then, after you deliver the manuscript, you start to have nightmares. My God, why didn't I say that, you know? And this book, so, let me... I, will just, I would like to focus on these different aspects of how we are manipulated, but not in the sense that there are some manipulators who pull the strings. Manipulation is an objective process uh, <coughs> in our most ordinary <coughs> everyday experience. I would like to begin by demonstrating or at least indicating how our most intense forms of pleasures 
are not spontaneous outbursts. They are something learned by imitation. They are an acquired taste. What do I mean by this? Be honest and recall your first experience of smoking or drinking a hard liquor. As a rule, how did it happen? It was a slightly older peer who told you in half secret, you know what adults are doing. They are smoking, they are drinking, and then he offered or she offered you to taste a cigarette or a whis whiskey and admit it, your first reaction was distaste, disgust, ah, is this it, and so on. And then you start coughing, spitting it out, is this supposed to be pleasurable? Then gradually you learn to enjoy it. I remember, because I come from an ex-communist country where coke was introduced relatively late, how even when we got our first taste of coke, it was exactly the same. But this is bitter, tasteless, is this it? But then we learned, yes, this is it. Uh, uh, so, what I'm, and now I will go to the end here. I claim that the same goes even for things like, uh, 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 like sexuality. I don't think it's really natural, if I may put it this way, to engage in sex, sexual activity with another person. The most... You just masturbate yourself, it's controlled and so on. It's always, you know, this element of, you learn it from outside, it's imposed on you. And I claim it's the same even with talking dirty, swearing. Usually we think, I talk with you in a polite way, then I don't know for what reason I get furious, I cannot any longer control myself, so I explode, I just do it. I don't think it functions like this. Maybe I'm a weird entity here, but I have a certain ritual which I love with my friends. When we meet, first for 10 minutes, and it's a ritual, we talk really dirty. We exchange this, it's ritualized, you know, like, and I'm coming from Balkan, you know. When I say dirty, I mean dirty, like... I will dig your mother out of her grave and screw her up, her and all that, you know. And then it's a beautiful moment. How after 10 minutes of this, we look at each other and we say, oh, finally, we got over this boring ritual. Now we can talk normally, you know. And it's wonderful. I mean, like, you are, you are released of this pressure, of this compulsion. So again... The lesson is that precisely these obscene pleasures, they are not spontaneous, they are learned, which means they are strictly part of our culture. And now, let me give you another much more crucial and pertinent example. Uh, we should apply this lesson also to forms of collective violence today, like gang rapes and killings. One of the terrifying effects of the non-contemporaneity of different levels of social life today is the rise of violence against women. Not just random violence, but systematic violence. Violence which is specific to a certain social context, which 
follows a pattern which transmits a message. Let me give you two opposite examples here. The serial killings of women in Ciudad Juarez, you know, opposite El Paso in northern Mexico. Uh, they are not just private pathology, uh, pathologists. I read two, three books on them. I spoke with one Mexican friend, and they told me it's not just, I don't know what, pathology and so on. It's strictly ritualized activity, part of the subculture of local gangs. It always follows the same model. First gang rape, then torture till death, which is done usually in a terrifying way, cutting off breast nipples with scissors and so on, uh, directed at young women working in many assembling factories uh, around Ciudad Juarez. Uh, so, uh, Again, you see my point. This is not an uncivilized, brutal outburst. No, it's what makes this serial rape so terrifying. It's not that brutal, violent, animal nature. It's precisely that they are, in some terrifying sense, cultural. They are a ritual with meaning. Now, you will say, okay, easy, Mexico bashing down there. Ah, so let's go to the opposite side. I have friends in Vancouver who told me something similar is happening with uh, uh, Native American, okay, Indian to say in the old way, uh, uh, Aboriginal women in Western Canada. Close. There are reservations around Vancouver where it's again a ritual. It happens all the time. A group of white men kidnap a girl from reservation and again tortures her, kills her, then they drop her within the reservation because they know that Indians there don't have effective enough police. And what makes all this so sad is that when authorities investigate this, they systematically try to downplay this, let's call it collective ritualistic aspect of it. They systematically try to reduce it to totally accidental, contingent uh, local matters, like, oh, probably parents were drug addicted, it's family violence, and so on and so on. Uh, they usually, the police, limit their investigation to the native community in order to present the crime as a case of, again, local family violence due to drugs and alcohol and so on and so on. In all these cases, the social dislocation due to fast industrialization and modernization provokes a brutal reaction of men who experience this development as a threat. And again, the crucial feature in all these cases is that the criminal violent act is not a spontaneous outburst of raw, brutal energy which breaks the chains of civilized customs, but something learned, externally imposed, ritualized, part of collective symbolic substance of a community. What is repressed for the public gaze is not the cruel brutality of the act, but precisely its cultural, symbolic character. And I claim that in a way the same goes for what we all know is the dark spot of today's Catholic Church, uh, pedophilia. I insist, again, I'm not claiming that 
There is no church without pedophilia. Maybe there can be a Catholic church without it. All I'm claiming is that pedophilia is something like the hidden curriculum, if you want. The, the obscene underground of Catholic church as an institution. It's part of the church's identity. It's not simply that, okay, there are pedophiliac amongst, among all people, so why they shouldn't be also in the Catholic community? No, they are part of that identity, which is why once I even used the term institutional unconscious to designate this underside. How do you know? Now you will say, but how do I know that this is part of church's identity? It's very clear if you, I don't know the situation here, but at least in Europe, in my own country, Ireland, Poland, and so on, thousands of cases, how the church as an institution reacted to it, trying to play it down, uh, 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 protecting not the victims, but the perpetrators, and, and so on, and so on, and so on. Uh, and uh, so, uh, what's the lesson of this? It is that when we see these types of behavior, criminal, brutally violent behavior, in these cases, at least, this is not something subversive in the sense of undermining official ideology. It's the key constituent of official ideology. So when we talk about official ideology, we should always remember it's not just the explicit norms, values, practices. We should also include this, let's call it, obscene underground. What is, of course, publicly denied, nobody admits it, but it's part of its uh, identity. How does this work? I was recently in Turkey, and a Turkish friend told me a wonderful story about Kemal Pasha Atatürk, you know, the, the father of modern Turkey. The official image of Atatürk was hard-working general, he dedicated his life to the well-being of Turkey, working 15 hours a day, and so on, and so on. Then there was a myth that he is, in reality, an ultra-seducer, that he struck, uh, screwed the wives of all his ministers, and so on, and so on. But now, it's still prohibited to attack him in public, in Turkey. But nonetheless, some researches were done discreetly, and the result is wonderful. Although, if you said this publicly, but wait a minute, Atatürk is the guy who was seducing women all around, although you got arrested, it was nonetheless a myth propagated by the power itself. It was part of Atatürk's public identity. Why? Because in reality, he wasn't like that. Now, some memoirs of his relatives were published, some censored, which clearly demonstrate that at least from 19, late 1920s, Atatürk was totally impotent what seducing women. Most he was, he sometimes uh, ordered some young boy prostitute to be brought to him and he didn't even penetrate them, he just played a little bit. So, uh, the nice thing you see is that this obscene myth Oh, he's not just working 15 hours a day, he's seducing women. This was part of his official 
identity. Which is why, now I'm coming to my point, a wonderful thing happened in Turkey. Uh, uh, in the 50s, some, there was some official political meeting where the representative of the Kemalist party, who were still in power there, said, there are slanders, rumors that our great leader Atatürk was seducing women. No, these rumors are totally false. And then a member of the opposition stood up and said, yes, I totally agree with you. These rumors are totally false. This guy was arrested and disappeared the next day. <laughs> because you see, this is what I'm talking about. It's something which is officially denied, but precisely as such, it's part of the official identity, as it were. And sometimes it's even more dangerous to disavow, to deny uh, this prohibited dark secret than to deny uh, uh, public values, and so on and so on. This uh, brings me to another feature of how ideology uh, functions. Uh, we usually identify an ideology with prohibitions. There are things which are permitted, there are things which are prohibited. But what interests me, what always fascinated me, are cases where, uh, how should I put it, uh, uh, prohibition itself is prohibited. Something is prohibited, but you are not allowed to pronounce publicly this prohibition. You have to act as if it's not prohibited, but you just don't do it. And uh, I read now new history of how Stalinist regime functioned, and I discovered that there uh, the logic was this one. I'm sorry if you know this story, but I will repeat it. I found it wonderful. Let's imagine that we are in Moscow in 35. I'm Stalin. I give a long speech. Then there is a debate. And then in that debate, one of you who is stupid enough stands up and attacks me, criticizes me. Of course, we all know next day the talk of the town would be who has seen, was the last to have seen alive that guy, no? But now let's imagine something else, that another guy stands up and attacks the first guy who criticized me, Stalin, saying something like, but are you crazy? Don't you know that we don't criticize Comrade Stalin here? I claim he, the second guy, would have disappeared even faster. You see what I mean? It was not only prohibited to criticize Stalin, it was prohibited to publicly announce this prohibition. Uh, this is why, although I had many polemics with her, I agree here with, personally, we are nonetheless friendly, Judith Butler, uh, who claimed how the first subversive act in, okay, she doesn't consider herself a feminist, but nonetheless, in feminist struggle is to state openly oppression, like in today's liberal society where women's oppression often has precisely this form of, you know, not only women are oppressed, 
but it's precisely considered tasteless and so on for them to publicly claim. You, you know, it's like what always fascinated me, this postmodern figure of a boss. It's no longer the traditional master who terrorizes you. It's something like, you know, today's boss, he's friendly with you, embraces you, did you have good sex last night, whatever, <laughs> as if you are... But he still maintains all authority. You see what I mean? It is authority, unquestionable, but masked as uh, friendship and so on and so on. And in such conditions, the first step you really hurt him is to claim, no, sorry, we are not colleagues, you are my boss. I'm subordinate to you, so please ask, sorry, uh, act like a boss. To, again, to break, to break all this. So, uh, 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 this form of prohibiting the prohibition brings us to another topic which I develop in many of my books. I don't have now time to go into it, which always fascinated me. This gap between explicit and implicit, which characterizes every culture, what defines a certain culture at all levels, from a small community like university department to larger communities, is that you don't only have rules which regulate your behavior. You also always have meta-rules which tell you how to obey explicit rules. Like, there are some rules which prohibit something, but effectively you are expected to violate those rules. I think that many rules of patriarchal oppression are like that. In the sense that, for example, in the standard male chauvinist family, at least in the old one, today it's different, father, of course, wanted to discipline you and so on and so on, but the message within the lines is go play with girls, do it, just do it discreetly and so on and so on, you know. Be, to be part of some culture is precisely to know how a prohibition effectively functions. For example, I was told, I read some stupid manager report that that's the big problem of Western companies uh, doing business in China today. That there, it's, you know, when you have a certain rule, it's extremely complex. Do you have to take that rule literally and so on and so on? And things get even more complex when you have the opposite paradox. Not rules which you are expect to violate them, but rules which give you the right to do something, but you are given this right only if you do not use it, you know. It's, uh, and I think... This complexity is what characterizes ideology. Ideology is not so much in explicit rules as in this thick cobweb of unwritten rules which tell you how to treat explicit uh, rules. Here, the superego agency, what in psychoanalysis is called superego actors. Superego would have been precisely that when you have a certain legal prohibition, don't do this. Superego would have been the implicit message, which means do it but discreetly or whatever. Like the opposite 
injunction. Which is why, and I here refer to Etienne Balibar, the pupil of Louis Althusser, his wonderful reversal of Louis Althusser's classical formula, according to which, you know, an ideology interpolates individuals into subjects. By identifying yourself with a certain ideological call, you become subject of ideology, whatever you are. Your ideological identity, mother, father, teacher, socialist, liberal, whatever. Uh, Balibar's idea is that superego, if explicit ideology, interpolates subjects into, sorry, interpolates individuals into subjects, like after you recognize yourself, for example, in a certain political ideology, you're not just an individual, you are subject, liberal, uh, fascist, whatever. Uh, superego does the opposite. It interpolates subject into individuals. It reduces you, a superego call, to your unique individuality burdened with guilt and responsibility. Uh, uh, and responsibility. This is why superego pressure gives rise to anxiety. In the eyes of the superego, I am alone. There is no big other beneath which I can hide. I am guilty as charged. How does this work today? A series of situations that characterize today's society, I claim, exemplify perfectly this type of superego individualization. Ecology, political correctness, poverty, up to the way depth, indebtedness functions in general. Does the predominant ecological discourse today not address us as a priori guilty, indebted to mother nature, under the constant pressure of the ecological superego agency? What did you do today to repay your debt to nature? Did you put all newspapers into a proper recycle bin? All the bottles of beer or cans of coke? Did you use your car where you could have used a bike or some means of public transport? Did you use air conditioning instead of just opening wide your windows and so on and so on? I think there is nothing progressive in this pressure. It's precisely when you want to address the true issue, what our industrial mega companies are doing, you know, superego reaction is, who are you to say this? Everyone can criticize big companies, but what did you do today? Did you separate all newspapers and so on and so on? I think this perfect ideological ma machinery of addressing you as isolated individual and making you feel guilty to terrorize you not to attend big questions. And I think the same goes for endless politically correct self-examination. Was my look at the flight attendant too intrusive and sexually offensive? Did I use any words with possible sexist undertones while addressing her? And so on and so on. The pleasure provided by such self-proging is evident. I claim that there is even a kind of a politically correct pleasure when you know my, some of my friends who are in this politically correct game I see their pleasure. You know, I used an expression, but then I discovered I was still a racist. I thought I'm <laughs> free of racism. No, but there was a shade of racism, that, and so on and so on. As for charity, 
Recall how we are all the time bombarded by messages destined to make us feel guilty for our comfortable way of life. Messages which simultaneously offer an easy way out. You can make a difference. Give $10 monthly and you will make a black orphan happy or whatever. Again, the ideological underpinning is easily discernible here. And uh, I claim that the same, this is a little more problematic maybe for you, the same holds even for the pathological fear of some Western liberal leftists to be guilty of today, for example, Islamophobia. I mean, I wrote about it. I'm the first to emphasize emancipatory potential of historical Islam, at least. But you know what depressed me very deeply? Maybe you followed it. And it's, again, very sad how it was underreported. Was it reported in your media, even in United Kingdom, they tried to play, uh, they tried to contain it, play it down. Did you hear, does the name Rotherham mean anything to you? It's a city about 1,100 north of London, where they discovered now, and these facts are undisputed, that in the last 10 years, at least 1,400 girls were systematically, serially, hundreds of times raped by uh, Pakistani youth gangs. And everyone was embarrassed. The police played it down. No, we shouldn't bring this out. We will be accused of Islamophobia and so on. So instead of Pakistani, they used the term Asians, Asiatic men. Other leftists claim this has nothing to do with religion or race. This is just men, uh, men, men's violence. Over, you know, I think that although this appears to be ultra political correctness, like you know, Muslims are are marginalized and so on. We shouldn't criticize them. I think that this is just an inverted, that maybe even more terrifying form of racism. I think. The only true favor we can do to our Muslim friends is to criticize them ruthlessly when they deserve it. There is nothing emancipatory in this game of, oh, if they are raping women, they are maybe just reacting in a desperate way towards, uh, against their marginalization and so on and so on. No, this is precisely inverted racism. I'm even tempted to say that Today's predominant form of racism is our privilege, privileging us as the only guys who are able to be really evil. You know, I noticed how when some big terrible thing is happening in some third world country, like uh, I remember Rwanda massacre somewhere 10, 15 years ago. The reaction of Western European liberal leftists was, oh, these are all after effects of colonization, like we are guilty and so on. But what they were effectively saying, that's the racist dimension that I saw, was something like they are so undeveloped and that uh, they even are not able to be truly evil, if I may put it in this way. Well, you know, it's as if, you know, in good good, bad, old days, we had this ideology of white man's burden. You know, like, uh, uh, 
we white men are destined because of our intelligence and so on to lead other. Uh, now we have a different type of white man's burden, which is, I claim, no less racist. Whenever something horrible happens in a third world country, we must be in some sense responsible, you know. Even now with ISIS, you know. The general mantra of the left is, but we are guilty for ISIS in Iraq and Syria, because it was the result of American intervention and so on and so on. And I think there is something so arrogant in it, which is why I deeply understand my Native American, which means Indian. I hate the term Native American. And my Native American friends hate this term. They consider it racist. My friends told me it happened in Missoula, Montana, a wonderful situation. They told me, why are we Native Americans? Opposite of nature in, is culture. So you are culture Americans, we are, and maybe you know this joke, I'm sorry if I repeat myself. They told me, we much prefer to be called Indians. At least our name is a monument to white man's stupidity, you know, who <laughs> thought they are in India. No? And where I fell in love in them, with them instantly is how they told me, my Native American Indian friends there, how you stupid white men, you think that we have some stupid organic, uh, uh, holistic relationship to nature, you know. No, and with such pride they told me, we burned more forests than you stupid white men ever did. We killed more buffaloes, we brought more violence, destruction to nature. It was a wonderfully correct, you know, statement, because they discerned very well this patronizing uh, attitude hidden in this, you know, this... this this is, I claim, one of the main forms of today, today's racism. When you say, we, with our mining companies, we just come there and uh, ruthlessly uh, uh, dig into the earth. But a Native American, he first talks to the spirits of a mountain, and only when a mountain uh, permits this. No, I think this, uh, this is apartheid logic. I remember when I was young, I was reading also, it was very interesting, white apartheid, racist, South African, books which tried to defend apartheid. Ah, you know what was the reasoning? Not the real one, economic exploitation, but multiculturalism. Their claim was, if we simply introduce egalitarian democracy in South Africa, what will happen with all those wonderful aboriginal cultures, Bushman, hot and thought? They will become vulgar, technologically oriented consumerists like us, and so on, and so on. You know, a true colonizer is always, that's the ABC of colonization, is always ready to admit the, some deeper spiritual superiority of the other, of the colonized. Like, all British colonizers read their memoirs, always claimed, okay, we British, we are better in economy, but a modest Indian Hindu priest has more wisdom than all Western science, and so on, and so on. Which is why I think uh, the truly emancipatory approach here, is to allow the others to become corrupted in consumerism and so on, the way we are. 
don't try to retain them in their purity or whatever. Uh, which is why, for example, uh, <coughs> my favorite example is, maybe you know the story, when I was in New Zealand, I became friendly with some local artists there, visual artists, painters. First, they, they gave me their usual bullshit, you know, like, oh, we talk to spirits, we resist your imperialist uh, technology and so on. But then they told me something wonderful. They told me that, you know, but nonetheless, we have two agents, one in New York, the other in Paris, who tell us what's the latest fashion. And then we quickly adapt our original talk with spirit, the latest fashion, and so on. And you know what's my point here? I claim there was nothing corrupted in it. This idea of some naive sincerity of aboriginal cultures is a myth. Did you see another example? A wonderful, and I really mean it, a very watchable, good movie, Inuit. Canadian Eskimo movie, The Fast Runner. You know, it's a retelling of an old Inuit myth, two tribes in conflict. Okay, the point is this one. In the original myth, it's a catastrophe at the end. Universal slaughter, tribe, the two tribes kill each other and so on. In the film, it's more upward optimist ending. They just exile, not even kill, two bad guys, and then the tribes are reconciled. And then a totally stupid Western, uh, I mean white Canadian journalist, attacked the director, an Inuit, accusing him of succumbing to consumerist culture. Like, why didn't you remain faithful to the authentic myth? Why do you introduce this happy end to make your movie more commercial and so on? And he this journalist got a correct answer. Namely, the Inuit movie director told him, no, you are a racist here. Because this idea of authenticity that you are trying to impose on us is your Western invention. He said, what I did with the meat, retell it in a new way. This is part of our culture. The original, authentic version is not part of our culture. In our culture, in each new situation, you change the story, you retell the myth in a, in a new way, and so on and so on. So, that I don't get lost, because I'm probably, where am I now? Uh, already? Okay, just a little bit more, if you allow me. Uh, 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 no, no, I'm just trying to... Uh, Okay, <coughs> sorry. Uh, okay, I will go directly to this. Uh, where are we today? The image that I was giving you is still the image of traditional functioning of power. We have what in psychoanalysis we call symbolic castration. That is to say, let's say we have an ordinary miserable individual. But, you know, the moment he puts on the insignia of power, it's no longer just him. It's power, law, authority, divine authority itself, which speaks through him. This is the traditional logic of power. Why? In Lacanian theory, we call this castration. Because you are decentered. You know, 
here we can see where some old-fashioned feminists get it wrong. When Lacan talks about so-called phallic signifier, he doesn't mean any symbol of male virility. For Lacan, phallic signifier is the signifier of castration. To assume phallus means to assume your castration. In what sense? The phallic element for Lacan is the insignia of power. You put a judge puts on a robe, a king, has a crown, whatever, and this is the phallic element. And you see the joke that the phallic element is detached from you. That's why Lacan talks about castration. The authority never comes from you, yourself. It's always external. There is always a gap between your miserable reality and your symbolic identity. But I claim, if you allow me the concluding line here, I claim that this gap between the symbolic title and the miserable reality of an individual is functions today in a different way. More and more, it's like this, uh, I quote here uh, Alain Badiou, who wrote this apropos Jean Genet's wonderful play, Balcon. Quote from Badiou, we encounter here an imaginary feature of democracy. Democracy means precisely that there are no costumes. Inequality no longer wears a costume or a dress. There are dramatic, gigantic inequalities, but their laicization leaves them without a costume. End of quote. On a simple descriptive level, this means that in a democratic egalitarian society, masters, those who exert power over others, no longer have to wear insignia or costumes. They can dress and act naturally like everybody else, renouncing all dignity. Today's master's message is precisely, see, we are all common people like you, with all weaknesses, fears, limitations, and so on, and so on. So today's master is fully ready to admit its castration in the sense of, I am a weak guy, and so blah, blah, blah. But the trick is that this admission of castration, like don't take me too seriously, I'm a weak guy like you, not only in no way undermines his or her power, but it's even the condition of the power. It's the very means, instrument of how power is, uh, of how power is uh, exercised. And, uh, now, this brings me to my, I'm really cutting it short, to my concluding moment, which is a wonderful uh, tautological mechanism of how, uh, uh, you know, today, it's no longer subversive to claim our leader pretends to be a dignified person, but really he is an ordinary guy like us. No, he openly admits that he is an ordinary guy like us, but he nonetheless continues to function, to function uh, as a master. Which is why, and with this I wanted to conclude, but I will rather cut it short, what fascinated me is how today... Uh, Ideology reproduces itself precisely by way of admitting its own weakness. For example, let me go to Wikileaks or Snowden, 
revelations and so on. What was the basic reaction of those in power? It wasn't to deny anything. It's difficult to deny. It was more something like, okay, we all know this, that governments are doing secret things and so on, but what's the big deal? We didn't learn anything new and so on. You see the point. They are ready to admit everything. They just want to curtail the symbolic consequences. It's the same strategy as, you know, if you are accused of something, of doing really something horrible, you must know that the most efficient way to avoid sincere apology is to apologize. But in this slightly aggressive way, you know, like, I did something horrible to you. What I would have, the way to apologize, okay, I'm sorry, now fuck off, leave me alone. You know what I mean? This logic of admitting it that the very all-too-hasty admission neutralizes it. And I think this is maybe, again, one of the great ideological mechanisms today. This is why, unfortunately, I don't believe in the power of disclosure as such. And I'm a friend with Julian Assange. I love him, but I always warn him, don't think that WikiLeaks really taught people something they didn't know. Of course, we learn many details, and it's good that you, we do. But let's be frank. Didn't we all suspect it? So what's the point? The point is that we cannot any longer pretend that we don't know it. The true target of WikiLeaks leaks revelation are not those in power, but we. We are not we, ordinary people, we should change. Because I, I claim, this is a risky hypothesis, if we were to ask many ordinary people, what do you think about torture? Torturing prisoners and so on. I claim that the majority of people, their answer would have been something like this. Maybe it has to be done, but let's do it discreetly. Don't bother. You know, like, they should do it, you know, and the point is to break this. The, the great, again, achievement of WikiLeaks is not what we learned, but that it became public knowledge. We cannot any longer pretend that it's just a private secret. We all know it's happening and so on and so on. This is why I claim, again, we need critique of ideology. That is to say, denunciation as such is not enough. And this is why, with this I will conclude, for example, I don't agree he attacked me once briefly in a footnote in New York Times, Alan Dershowitz, the lawyer who proposed, you know, legalizing torture in the sense of precise conditions. You have doctors who uh, examine you. That's how much pain you can endure without risking your health, blah, blah, blah. And my point is, here I'm referring to the event book, the one chapter before the last, where I talk about diseventalization, in the sense that an event, in the sense of new civilizatory achievement, is cancelled. We regress. Look, I'm not a hypocrite here. When friends tell me, but if you are desperate, wouldn't you torture someone? I'm not a hypocrite here. In a little bit of melodramatic, stupid way, if you ask me frankly, 
Yes, I can imagine situations where, honestly, the least I can say is, I cannot promise you not to succumb to the temptation of torturing. Let's take this ridiculous melodramatic situation, some evil guys kidnapped my young daughter, which I don't have. And then <laughs> I have in my power a guy, I know that he knows where my daughter is kept. Well, out of pure despair, I cannot guarantee that I would not torture him. But I think it should remain prohibited. You know why? I should at least remain aware that out of pure despair, I did something terrifying. The, the, the ethical catastrophe is when this is normalized, legalized. That's the end, in a way. And here, I think, we really live today in an uh, uh, the public admission of torture is just one of the effects of this. We live in an era of ethical regression. We even don't notice how things which were unthinkable 20, 30 years ago are now a matter of public debate uh, and so on and so on. So uh, it's not true that uh, things are simply how should I put it, uh, uh, getting better and so on and so on, gradual progress. No, we live in an era of ethical, simply of ethico-political regress, in an era where ideology is stronger than it ever was. For, this is why, for example, I don't know it's translated, you should read it. The wonderful book by Italian leftist uh, sociologist Maurizio Lazzarato, The Rise of the Indebted Man. It analyzes in detail the ideological dimension of debt and how it functions as a disciplinary machine. His point is that debt is used in order to even neutralize class distinction. The idea is this one. Let's say I'm a poor guy. I barely survive, so I get indebted. And then I decide what I can do with the debt, with the money I got. No? Like, I can invest it in a good holiday, I can invest it into my son's education, I can invest it into better health care, or whatever. The trick here is the category of self-entrepreneurship. The idea is we shouldn't even talk about capitalists and workers. Am I, when I'm doing this, not doing basically the same thing as a big capitalist? Just instead of investing billions, I invest 10,000 or what, you know. But this is, again, a wonderful example of how class distinction can be obfuscated and so on. And uh, just with this, really to conclude, another example would have been freedom. I'm, I'm absolutely for freedom, and also, I'm not a stupid old-fashioned Marxist who buys this bullshit of bourgeois, just formal freedoms, and so on. But nonetheless, when people talk about freedom, we should nonetheless ask a simple question, the Leninist question. You know, Lenin liked to say, Freedom, yes, but freedom for whom? To do what? What do we mean today when we say we are free? We usually mean this everyday life level freedom of choice, you know. And it's an incredibly strong machine. You notice how 
the entire Republican Party attack on Obama healthcare project was based on this. Obama wants to take from us the freedom of choice in the domain of uh, healthcare and so on. So my point is, what does it mean in our everyday experience to be free? It means I do in my sex life whatever I want. I can decide where will I will live. I can decide what I drink, what I... Like, these everyday freedoms. But, and this, they are good. I'm not in any way mocking them. All I'm saying is, is this enough? Here I like to quote, and again, it's typical how underreported this was. Did you hear about, I don't know how to pronounce it in English, this TISA, T-I-S-A agreement? Do you even know what goes on? These are the latest WikiLeaks revelations which were practically ignored. Do you know that now, this month, a crucial negotiations are going on among superpowers to enforce a new worldwide trade agreement which fixes in advance the conditions of the free flow of money, of information, and so on and so on. It's something incredibly more important than NAFTA and so on. When endorsed, when, sorry, when enforced, this agreement will pose strict limits to what different elected governments will be able to do, limiting their, what they can do in healthcare, in education, because these financial rules regulating uh, financial transactions will be enforced worldwide. Now, what's so mysterious is that not only are these negotiations done in secret, but it's even part of the text of the agreement that when it will be accepted, enforced, it should remain secret for five years. Now, you see, this is where we are today. Something that will have an incredibly strong economic uh, power, which will structure our lives for decades to come, is done in secret. And, of course, immediately we don't feel it as limiting our freedom. You can still do whatever you want with your money, this, that, and so on. Uh, but I think that we should expand the notion of freedom without limiting in any way our personal freedoms to, to move beyond just this idea, free, this everyday Freedom. I can buy this car or that car, I can buy whatever book I want, I can uh, do in my sex life whatever I want, and to ask. But these freedoms always take place within certain economic, social, ethical, ideological coordinates. Wouldn't be a true freedom also the right to establish some kind of collective agency which changes also this institutional, economic, and so on framework within which I, I enact my freedom. And this is what makes me so sad. With this, I will really conclude now the last <laughs> sentence. Uh, this is maybe why we in Europe were so fascinated by the ongoing events in Ukraine. 
I claim. It's not so much our West European racism, like, oh, those primitive Ukrainians now, they want to be like us. No, I think what really fascinated us, although it's not this what really went on there, but at least it appeared that what? Hundreds of thousands of people gathered and enforced a collective will. People can gather and still do something. We no longer have this freedom in the West. We cannot even imagine something like that happening. So you see, I have no utopia here. I'm not saying this new freedom, we need an old-fashioned communist party or whatever. All I'm saying is whenever people talk about freedom, just be attentive to almost in a, if you know philosophy a little bit, you know this Wittgenstein ordinary language stuff of the meaning of word is their use. So, what does it mean when people claim we are free today? And is this enough? Here things begin. And I don't have big answers. I don't have any easy solution. I am well aware of this terrifying deadlock of how we had protests here and there, Occupy Wall Street, Greece, Spain. But if you ask people, okay, what do you want? You get either general platitudes, no? like money should serve people, people shouldn't serve money, which is meaningless platitude, every fascist would have agreed with it, no? Uh, uh, or you get some kind of uh, Keynesianism. I like them, but they are not enough. This is Piketty, Stiglitz, uh, Krugman line, you know. Basically, we keep capitalism, but just we change it a little bit, uh, like more taxes or whatever and so on. And will this, this is the big question today, is this enough or not? So I claim again that we are much more than we think in a critical situation because it's not only as old Marxist thought, we know what is to be done, we just don't know how to mobilize people. This is why incidentally all Marxist, old-fashioned Marxist like psychoanalysis because they have a certain theory. Then you ask them, but fuck you, you predict revolution, why is the working class not revolutionized? And then they tell you, oh, because it's ideological manipulation, here psychoanalysis will explain it, and so on and so on. You know, like, the reference to psychoanalysis makes it easy for them to stick to their theory, no? No, I'm not even saying this. I'm just saying that the situation is much worse. We are really... We lack what Fred Jameson likes to call cognitive mapping. We don't even have a good general concept image of where we are, of what is happening. I think that all these terms like, you know, information society, risk society, post-industrial society, are not yet concepts. Which is why, back to my starting point, we need public places like the one here, we need to think. I even think, and with this I will really conclude now, you know, <laughs> that, uh, you know I, 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 I am here like uh, Marx is, you know, Marx said capitalism is coming to an end. Then Lenin said imperialism is really the last stage of capitalism. Then 50 years later, Mao Zedong said 
Now today's American imperialism is the absolutely last totally rotten state of capitalism. Now they say, you know, that this digital new capitalism is the really, you know, always you get a little bit more, no? So it's like my talk, <laughs> but what I'm saying is that I don't believe in this stupidity. Don't just talk, do it. Maybe we were doing too much. And I'm claiming maybe our motto should be don't just do things, talk, think. Don't be afraid to withdraw and just to think. Thanks very much for your kind. Now I. Yeah, but okay, let's do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? Uh, my friend told me that we are out of time. I talk too long, but I claim now. I will. You will see my Stalinist nature. That we should get at least one question to pretend that there is freedom. <laughs> and if you are a true Stalinist Democrat, I hope you already wrote that question and distributed it or did. whatever. You know? So all right, one question. How can, how can um, uh, disengagement become a constructive act? Uh, constructive. Yeah, or like, uh, yeah. Because only through disengagement can you gain the space, the proper perspective to truly intervene. If you directly intervene, you never act in, in empty space. Without disengagement, you simply remain within the existing ideological coordinates and so on. I'm not talking of disengagement in the sense of we all move to Tibet and me meditate there and so on. I'm just saying that we should lose this simple transparency of we know what is to do. No, I'm not so sure we know what is to do. We need disengagement in the cognitive and I think even, okay, if there is a politician of 20th century who is problematic today, is Lenin. But even he followed these lines. I always quote 1915, mega fiasco, World War I. All local social democratic parties, except Russian social democrats and so on, voted for war credits and so on. Total fiasco. What did he do? He moved to Switzerland and read Hegel's logic. You know, he wasn't afraid. He thought that the fiasco was so radical that all, even the basic coordinates have to be, uh, have to be rethought. And we shouldn't succumb to this blackmail of, my God, we don't have time to think. If I may conclude, I know most of you know it, but I love it. Joke about Lenin that I know from my youth. I come from a communist country where on school boards usually there was this phrase by Lenin, Lenin's advice to young children, learn, learn and learn. I'm sorry if you know it, there is a wonderful joke from that era about how they ask Marx, Engels and Lenin, what do you prefer to have, wife or mistress? Marx, more conservative, said wife. Engels, a bon vivant, said a mistress. Lenin said both. I want a wife and a mistress. And shocked, the journalists say, my God, is Lenin, we thought he's an ascetic revolutionary. Is he a secret pervert? They tell you why. And Lenin said so that I can 
tell my wife that I'm with my mistress, and I can tell my mistress that I'm with my wife. And they ask him, but what do you really do then? He says, learn, learn, and <laughs> learn. This is what we need today. Don't, be, don't feel guilty to, as it were, uh, to step back. I'm just claiming that we really need to know where we are. We don't know where we are. Sorry. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh. I hate this personalized quote. Yes,